morning. <clears throat> when the Academy asked me to say a few words at this occasion, I was given the subject of leadership. And I immediately objected, saying, why should I talk about leadership to this group? These are already leaders. You know about leadership and what it takes to make a leader. To which the reply was given, well, you've spent most of your life studying American political history. Is there anything you could say that would help us to clarify how the American political process works and how leaders come to fore to set up some certain criteria for the selection of leaders? Now, I thought about this for a while and thought, well, in a way, this is like so many questions that I do receive almost daily. People write or they call and they say, what would Abraham Lincoln think about abortion? What would Abraham Lincoln say about missile defense? <laughs> and so on. Uh, these are questions that obviously are ahistorical. They have no meaning. And the only answer one can responsibly give is, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. But then it occurred to me, well, maybe after thinking about these matters for a long time, there might be certain patterns that one could take, uh, detect perhaps one could select out a few questions that would be useful in asking candidates for the highest office in America, which we're about to choose, you know, within about a week. I've come up with three questions that I would like to pose to the candidates and would be interested in their responses. The first is, are you, as candidate for President of the United States, are you physically and emotionally fit for this office? That's a hard question. Remember that the presidency is the most taxing job there is in the world today. It is an immensely draining task. It always has been. You can look at the photographs of Abraham Lincoln and see him in 1860, clean-shaven, young, virile, coming into the presidency and then contrast them with the photograph, that last sad photograph of Lincoln in 1865, gaunt, sunken eyes, graying skin, clearly worn out, tired, exhausted. This happened even in the 19th century. It's even more so in the 20th century. Remember, in the 20th century, how many times we have lost presidents or have lost an immense amount of time because of illness or of death. One has to simply think of Woodrow Wilson fell by a stroke, of Warren Harding, for example, of Franklin Roosevelt dying in office, of Eisenhower out of office much of the time because of major operations, of Nixon struggling against bipolar emotional disorder, of John Kennedy always in pain. We need to have a president who is strong enough to perform his duties. And he must be emotionally strong, too. I'd like to ask the candidates, do you have this kind of record? And to answer the question, I don't think it's enough to get a good statement from your family doctor saying, oh, he's a fine fellow. He's been in my office many times, and I think he's in tip-top shape. We need some expert advice here. Uh, are the people we are voting for here, are they going to survive? Are they going to live? Are they going to be effective as presidents? A second question I'd want to ask is, do you have enough experience to be President of the United States? 
In Abraham Lincoln's case, the answer was clearly no. Lincoln had served four terms in the Illinois State Legislature with some skill. He served one undistinguished term in the United States Lower House of Representatives. He'd been defeated twice for the United States Senate, and that was it. He had never run anything. His office was a two-man law office, and that's all. Sometimes there was a, a law student working there as a kind of a clerk. But he had never managed anything. He had never been a member of a cabinet. He had never been a governor. He had never run anything. The results during the first year of the Lincoln administration were almost disastrous. He literally did not know which strings to pull and thought he could do everything himself. He tried to read all the documents. He tried to be involved in all the decisions. And the result was that he was exhausted and made some miserable choices. The same has happened to some other presidents as well. More recently, <clears throat> I have talked with David Gergen about his experiences with President Clinton, who he says had the most chaotically organized White House staff of any American president because he did not have the experience to know how to manage. What would be a good experience for an American president? One's tempted, first of all, to say, well, several years in Washington, uh, knowing the Congress and so on. But our record on this is fairly mixed. We have Warren G. Harding, who was preeminently a Senate manipulator and no very great president. We have, on the other hand, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the greatest expert at all, of all in organizing and getting bills through Congress. So sometimes, yes, but not always. Is a governorship a good qualification of, in terms of experience? And again, the answer has to be sometimes yes. If it's from a powerful state like New York, where the governor of New York has immense power, and out of that power comes a Franklin Roosevelt. If, on the other hand, you look closely, and very few reporters do, at the constitutions of other states, you will see in many cases the governor is almost a figurehead. He has very little power at all, and he serves often only one term. In this case, uh, one thinks, for example, of uh, President Jimmy Carter, uh, who clearly just did not have the experience. And one might add uh, the President of the United States, who was ill-prepared by serving as governor of Arkansas. So experience would be my second question. My third question is, would be on a more personal level. Do you, as a candidate for President of the United States, have at least one close personal friend in whom you can freely confide your thoughts, your ideas, your explorations, your tentative moves? This may seem unreasonable to think of as a qualification for the presidency, but it isn't in fact. The great American presidents have had such confidants. Woodrow Wilson had his Colonel House. Franklin Roosevelt had his Harry Hopkins. John F. Kennedy had his brother Robert Kennedy. Presidents who do not have confidants have often had a very difficult time. Richard Nixon, for example, confided in nobody. Well, unless maybe B.B. Roboso, with whom he discussed fish and maybe gin uh, on his boat in Florida. Abraham Lincoln had no close friends at all in the White House. There was literally no one with whom he could share his burden. Consequently, he had no other way to test out ideas to see, would this work? How would it feel if I did this, that, or the other? 
and this in turn made the burdens of that office incalculably heavy. These are the three questions that I'd like to ask of presidential candidates to see how you would fit what we can learn from the election of 1860 that might be of help to us in the election of the year 2000. And in brooding over this matter, I, like Abraham Lincoln, keep harking back to Aesop's fables. He always had a fable ready on an occasion like this. The old fable you all know of the frogs and their king. There was a pond in which there floated a big black log. It was inhabited by many frogs, and the frogs respected the big black log as their king and gave it due reference and respect. But presently, some of the younger frogs began saying, we don't get anything out of this at all. Why do we pay respect to a log that does absolutely nothing? So they petitioned to Jupiter, send us a king. Send us a king who will do something. And Jupiter, always benign, sent them one, a stork. And the stork came and landed and began busily got engaged in the activities of the pond, fishing around, and presently, he ate up the frogs one at a time so there were no frogs left. The moral of the story, I leave to you. And I leave to you to decide in the present American contest which is frog, which is stork. Thank you.